Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Series 3 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful, top-of-their-field specialists, and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project, and I'd love to continue to do more, so if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on ACAST Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. In this podcast, I talk to adoption specialist Alison Roy. Alison is an experienced registered psychotherapist, a consultant child and adolescent psychotherapist, author, specialist consultant and trainer. She has over 25 years of experience in both the NHS and independent and community settings, and she focuses on the deep significance of early relationships and the impact of trauma and loss on personality. She was a co-founder and previously the clinical lead for the CAMS and East Suffolk ADCAMS and has developed a special interest in adoption. She's also written a brilliant book about adoption called A for Adoption. I talked to Alison about adoption from both the adopters and adoptees point of view, looking at the difficulties that may be faced and how to tackle them. We also hear from an adoptee, James, not his real name, whose story is read by an actor. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Alison, hello and welcome to the podcast. You and I have talked many times over the years about adoption, but I guess it's the nature of what I do, i.e. problem column writing, that I hear about when there are problems or difficult and challenging feelings. But I've often wondered, is that typical of adoption in the outside world? My experience is that most people are doing their best just to fit in and be normal like everybody else. So on a day-to-day basis, people are just going about their business, trying not to be or feel different. But I think it's normal for people who've experienced a significant trauma, and adoption is a trauma, in that you've been separated from the people you should have been with. 
It's normal to feel that you're different or there's something about you that's different. And it can feel really complicated to try and talk about that. And I would encourage people to notice those differences and to think about how they become more honest about their stories and find ways of telling their story that helps them be who they need to be so that they don't have to invest quite so many resources and efforts into just trying to fit in, whatever that means. I think now the idea is that you tell children that they're adopted, but certainly in the past it seemed that children weren't told. In your experience, did they feel different even if they didn't know they were adopted? I I think that's a really good question, but I, I think in the past perhaps... Parents were trying to hide their own losses and their own feelings of shame and trying to pretend that they were normal and talking about childlessness or not being able to conceive or losing a baby or any kind of experience relating to making a family that's been difficult, upsetting and feels different to others for whatever reason seemed to be problematic in previous generations to be able to be open about that so unfortunately the shame and the difficulty got transferred onto the child making it really hard for them to be curious about their own lives and to ask questions but I I think today there's much more training for would-be adopters And there's much more of an emphasis on trying to be honest, on knowing the child's story and knowing your own story and how the two come together. So it's more usual for children to have had conversations about why our family is a bit different, why we are like this, what adoption means. But I I think children know, even if they're not told, Um, You may not have the words for it, but I've worked with children who weren't told that they were adopted when they were younger and they always felt that they knew. They knew there was something different and they used to ask their parents questions such as, did you steal me or was I kidnapped? So I, I think parents have a sense of what they should or shouldn't say to their children. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. But children most certainly have a sense of something not feeling right. Yeah. And how do they feel different? Is there a common thread? That's complicated. I I think anyone who's had to cope with a very difficult experience, a loss, a death of a parent, a serious illness, for example, has had to do some growing up that maybe other children where their lives have been a bit more straightforward. No one's life, I think we need to dispel the myth, no one has a completely sorted, normal, perfect life. (laughs) We, We all have issues, we've all had difficult, painful experiences in our lives. But I I think some children have to grow up and become very aware. They might be a young carer and they've had to make sense of the world through their own eyes because no one's been doing that for them. And that leaves its mark. I I do think people then have a sense of being too aware or too sensitive and different to those who can just get on with being a child or being a young person. And it can feel quite lonely 
having that experience and not knowing how to talk about it and share it with those around you? I mean, asking a really possibly stupid question, should you tell children that they're adopted? I think you should, yeah. I, I think children cope much better with honesty if it's done in a sensitive, open way. But the caveat to that is that if you haven't come to terms as parents with your adopted child's story, they're going to have difficulty with their story. So I would encourage adopters, yes, tell the truth, find a way to tell the truth in an age-appropriate way. So you wouldn't give them all the information that you may have, but you would find a way to explain how they came to be in your family and how important they are. But there's also something about how you do work on yourself, how you get support, how you ask questions you need to ask so that your story is straight. Your version of the child's story is as straight as it can be and you've got the support you need to come to terms with the pain in your child's story because it's going to become your story. One of the parents I worked with for my book said, there's a murder in our family. And she was talking about her adoptive child's parents, Mm -hmm. but it had become her story and she had to make it her own and make sense of it and come to terms with the pain of this child's birth family before she could be open and thoughtful with him about his story. It's really important finding a way to make sense of that. What is making sense of your child's story and what would not be making sense of it? And the other things, I remember you saying, don't make the first time you tell them the first time you say it out loud, mm. almost kind of practice. But can we go back to what, what you mean by making sense of your own story? Because I think I know, having spoken to you many times, but for someone listening, they might think, well, I don't know if I've made sense of the story. I mean, there's so many layers to people's stories. But I think if you, for example, as prospective adopters, you haven't come to terms perhaps with your own experience of not being able to have children or you haven't been completely honest with the people who've done the assessment with you about your your relationship or the fact that you know your parents lost a child before they conceived you and you've always felt like a replacement child but you can't talk about it. Those difficulties that remain as hotspots painful places within yourself, if they keep getting hidden, then they come up in difficult ways when you become parents. And that's the same with birth parents. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. So knowing your own story and having the courage and support to go to those places you most want to avoid, it doesn't mean you have to go into all the detail, but just make sense of these are the patterns that keep coming up for me. This is what I feel around being a parent. This is what my child stirs up for me. Understanding our own story in that respect will also help us have compassion for a child who we might expect to rock up to therapy and and talk about their story. If we haven't (laughs) had the courage to think about areas of difficulty within our own lives, we won't have compassion and understanding for the child that we're trying to parent. And the other thing that you and I have talked about before for your column is adopters who haven't had their own birth children and who've been longing for children and longing to be a parent 
will often have put together this sort of three or four course meal of love for a child that may arrive with them starving and you can only give them the nurture one teaspoon at a time so it's also know your child and what they can take mm. and and you you may not be able to get the story out in one sitting i mean you you certainly won't actually <laughs> so so it's working out what can we talk about today that fits with this game that we're playing that is a response to a child's curious meaningful question but it's a really hard question and i'm I'm going to try and be honest, but we're, we're going to do this in stages. And you can even say, I can't, I'm not going to give you the full answer now, but I am going to tell you that I really think, for example, your birth mummy really loved you. I know that's a bit weird because she didn't keep you, but I just had a sense when I held you in my arms for the first time that you'd experienced love before. Or, or I just had a sense the way you looked at me that you knew what it was to have someone hold you. So, so finding little things like that alongside they were a drug user or they grew up in care or whatever. Mm. It's, a, it's a really strange message as well that social workers give to children and young people when they do their later life story letter is to say you were, you were loved and wanted, but your parents gave you away. And, and those confusing things that we say to try and cover up the cracks, they're not helpful in the story. <laughs> so, so there's something about letting the child know that they're thought about and noticed and that their, their painful experience has been validated. Would you wait for a child to ask? Or because, well, a child's not going to say, am I adopted? Or they might do, but how would you first broach it? I think parents are encouraged right from the start to, even when they, if you adopt a baby, even to just bring it into your little conversations with the child in a comfortable way. So right from the beginning, I'm your mummy now. You had a different mummy when you were born. Well, I, I'm your daddy and you're absolutely gorgeous. I didn't make you, but you're in my heart. Because teaching parents to say those things to their baby also helps them say them to themselves. So it, it's about honest messages that you give your baby right from the beginning, if possible, so that there's not a big reveal that's quite traumatic for everybody. But there will come a time where the child kind of knows, has always known that they're adopted, but there may well come a time when that child has a more pertinent question to ask about when you found me or about that foster carer that they felt was their parent or what what happened? Did you kidnap me? I mean, that's a really painful question that some children mm. ask their adoptive parents. Really? Gosh. Did you steal me? I had no idea that they asked that. Mm, yeah. It's an interesting choice of words as well. Why do they ask that, do you think? It's a curious question, isn't it? But I, I think some children have a sense of not belonging or if they'd had numerous changes, for example, they might have been, might have moved to a foster carer in their first days or weeks of life and they stayed with that foster carer sometimes, maybe even nearly a year, maybe even longer. And that was all they'd ever known. And for some foster carers, it's a really painful experience letting go of 
a child who's been with them since they were a baby and and they don't all manage it well in terms of handing a baby over to somebody or a young child over to somebody new so that experience of being transitioned to another family i think the intention is usually and social workers work generally really hard to try and make it a smooth transition but it doesn't always go according to plan so it could be over a period of weeks the adopters come to the home and spend time and maybe then there's a home visit and an overnight stay but sometimes it's speeded up because it's just too painful for everybody and the child suddenly has an experience of being somewhere for a very long time to them pretty much their whole lives and being almost satellited into a whole new family with different standards different smells it can probably feel as if they've been stolen away yes i understand that more i mean i think it's a good point to say that whether you've adopted or you've had biologically had children to sort of know yourself and know what's your stuff and your child's stuff and separate those things out so you know if you have rejection early on in your own life and you adopt and then you're going to much more easily interpret rejection from that child and I think that I I see this again and again with parents writing in where I'm just like you have to separate out you know do your work on your own issues and then you can work out what that child is saying to you and not make it about you and the other thing and I, I also say this in the sex education episode but it's really worth repeating which is listen to the question that a child asks you and answer just the question factually simply and calmly and I think when they ask questions that hit those hot spots there can Mm -hmm. be a tendency to suddenly just think oh my god there's a brilliant little ad for an extra virgin olive oil where the little girl (laughs) is asking mommy what's virgin and the mother goes into this extreme explanation and then the girl says what's extra virgin and she's just reading off the bottle and (laughs) and it's it just really sort of shows you how Mm -hmm. you need to focus in on what they've actually asked you rather than you know you don't have to concertina open the whole life story we all do it and I think I've read you write about this sometimes we switch things in that somebody's talking about them and it's a question very much to do with their lives and as you say it touches on something in us and we feel very tempted to then talk about our stuff Mm. (laughs) and and it is really important with children to listen to the question fully and take it in and to notice the difference between those sort of background questions that children ask and the one that deserves your full attention. And I think it's really important as well to say at the end of one of those those important questions, and you kind of know it, you feel it in your heart when it's one of those important questions, does this question lead to any other questions? To ask of yourself or the child? To them. Yeah. Because then that's an opportunity for more discussion and a conversation where you might then be able to talk a little bit about your experience and the child will be interested. But to begin with, they just want you to answer their question. What do you think a doctor's greatest fear is? I suspect losing their child. And yet sometimes that's their greatest desire too when it's been really difficult, really painful, 
knowing that there are times when an adopter feels, what have we done? Just as a birth, I, I think a birth parent might feel that too sometimes. Mm. It's a myth that parents will always love their children, always like their children. But I, I think when you've invested so much in a child that was not your own, the fear is that someone will come back and take them from you, probably. And do you think that's what sometimes stopped them being honest with their social workers to say they're really struggling? I think so. I mean, it depends on the social worker and the relationship. I can't say enough just how important it is for professionals to take the time to build meaningful relationships with those that they work with. I mean, I can go off on one politically, but services are just not being designed and supported to really encourage professionals to build meaningful relationships where people begin to trust them and therefore tell the truth. What do you think they're lacking? What do they need to make them better? Well, they need experiences where they can tell the truth. Mm. Good supervision, support networks, being part of a community, building communities where work becomes safe, where you can reflect on that feeling of dislike that you might have had for a potential adopter, adopter or or a, a, a feeling of that person reminds me of my parent or that person reminds me of me and therefore I'm very invested in this person becoming an adopter and there are things I might miss. If you have good supervision where you can take the uncomfortable feelings, these feelings are important data in our work, and then you can name them and bring some of the difficult subjects into the conversation and it becomes a much more trusting, open relationship. And adopters then feel much more able to ask real questions, but also be honest about their own anxieties and worries. There have been too many times in my experience where one of the adoptive parents felt they weren't going to bond with the child. They didn't feel connected to the child, but they were really too afraid to say. And what can you do in a situation like that? I think it's better to try and name it. I've worked with adoptive parents in groups and and as couples or individuals where I'll work with them to try and help them fake it to make it, Mm -hmm. which is I know what I should do as a parent and I'm finding it really difficult to do because the feelings aren't there. So so then it's, well, okay, let's stick with what you know is important to do. And sometimes working with that, the feelings do come actually, when, when you start to do what you should do, when you're helped and supported rather than trying to persuade you that you've got that wrong, of course you can bond with them. And it's the same for birth parents too. You know? I've worked with depressed mothers in a perinatal team where it's really important that a mother can say that that was a really awful experience. My life feels turned upside down and I really don't know what I feel about this baby. And being able to say that makes it possible to get the support you need to try and have a better attachment. And it's the same with adopters. I think once you name it, you can process, you can start to process it. But also, unless you turn around and face it, you can never sort of dissolve it, if you like, or hope to neutralise it because you're fighting not thinking about it. And that sort of almost becomes the, the main aim.
Alison, what do you think adoptees' greatest fear is in your experience? Oh, that is a question. I think they have so many fears. One of them most definitely is a big fear of rejection. And that's not just about their adoptive parents. I think that can be applied to so many of their relationships. And it's interesting because I see a number of adoptive young people becoming people pleasers, is the phrase that we've started to become familiar with. And yet they might feel resentment and fury and distress, but they just feel they can't show it because they're expected to be grateful mm. or something for, for what they've been given. And they're frightened of losing the connections and attachments that they have got. Whereas those of us who've had an experience of at least something that was good enough or, or we've gained it through therapy or support or our adult relationships, we have an inner confidence to be able to say, I'm not happy with that, or I don't like it when you do that. I know that's probably going to offend you, but it's really important that I tell you the truth because you're my friend. And know that if they're a good friend, somehow you'll, <laughs> somehow you'll come through it, and you've got other friends anyway, and you've got an an innate confidence inside that you've got enough people that are there with you for an adopted child or young person who might have had numerous changes or disruptions in their life. They don't have that confidence and therefore they end up sometimes doing things and saying things they don't want to do in order to please people and, and start to feel pretty phony and fake. You talked earlier, it's such a brilliant analogy about people who adopt you know, they've often come through loss and pain and certainly, you know, it takes a long time to adopt and they come ready with like, you know, this amazing three-course meal and they can see it as rejection, but actually the child may only be able to take on a teaspoon of that love. That was such a powerful image. Do you think adoptive parents have unrealistic expectations? I think we all have unrealistic expectations in life of of ourselves, of our relationships, so much about life is probably to do with managing our expectations and getting help to manage our expectations. That doesn't mean that we should put up with disappointing people and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't aim as high as we can aim for ourselves. I think if we could learn to manage our expectations within relationships and not have such high standards of what others should be, I think we would have more real and genuine relationships and we would perhaps learn to be less disappointed <laughs> and more real. But I, I think in terms of losses, the trouble is if you've been yearning and waiting and longing for a child, it's an incredibly painful process and if you feel in your heart that you have so much to give, it, the temptation is to want to have that already mm. and laid out for the child. But it, that's where it's really important to know that it's not that they won't take in that over time, but they certainly won't be able to receive it all at once. So I think it's maybe learning to love yourself. And giving the love that you long to give to a child, give some of that love and compassion and nurture to yourself before you take that child into your home. Because boy, are you going to need it. You know, they're, 
someone who comes into your home with significant loss and trauma and adoption is different these days I mean I sound like an old granny when I say <laughs> that but it is it is different you know anyone any child who is not going back to their birth family they have probably come from birth parents who've been exposed to all kinds of adverse experiences be that drugs alcohol they were child in care themselves they are going these children do not arrive in the world as a blank canvas they they so often arrive compromised and they could easily turn your world upside down i don't want to put people off adopting because i think it can be a very rich meaningful experience but it is going to be tough so if you can learn that three course meal you had prepared or more <laughs> give some of that to yourselves and each other nurture yourselves don't let go of those resources don't let go of your friends or your community you're going to need to keep filling up the tank because those children will drain it and then just over time these children will begin to receive more from you if you are consistent and you continue to want to provide love and care and you begin to know what they can and can't receive from you and when, they, they will begin to receive nurture and they will begin to grow. But it really takes time. You've covered some of this already, but if anyone's listening and is thinking of adoption, what would you say to them? What things should they think about? I would encourage people get my book, <laughs> but there's quite a lot about preparing the soil well. It's going to be tough, you know, in terms of the analogy of a garden. Make sure that the soil is well fertilised. Grow your support network. Get as much resources there ready to grow this little seed. And make sure that you have people around you that have proved themselves when the going gets tough, if possible. The other thing is I would say ask as many questions as you need to ask. You know, Get your story straight and be honest in your adoption assessment. Ask for help. You'll be assessed on your capacity to ask for help and your capacity to get that support when you need it. That's also there in the assessment. So ask lots of questions about the birth parents, about the birth, about anything that you can have to give to your children in the future when they ask you questions. And the other thing is know your own losses and deficits because they will be triggered. Get the support that you need in place, if possible, even before you adopt. Know yourself. Yeah, that's hard. It's a challenge <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> that's hard to, to sort of know yourself. I mean, I think it's like a life's work, isn't it? Sure. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're going to hear from an adoptee in a bit and I'm going to talk a bit more about the adoptees experience in the second half but one of the things you and I've spoken about as well are sort of stories and that strikes me that that's as important for the parents as it is for the child about your own stories because I'm not adopted so you know my sort of heritage I just took it for granted when we talked about it but why are stories important generally and also in particular with regard to adoption. Well, I quote that quote from Jeanette Winterson in Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, which is the baby explodes into an unknown world that is only knowable through some kind of story. But adoption drops you into the story after it started. Mm. So it's like reading a book with the first few pages missing. Right. What I say to young people and their adoptive parents, if there's gaps in the story, you can't always fill those gaps. You can't always find the information you feel you need. You can't always find your birth parents, to be honest. That becomes part of your story rather than an obsession where you have to get all of the details and the information in order to feel complete. I think Learning to tell a version of your story that works and fits for you, one that you can share with others because it's you've worked it well in your own mind and you've shaped it. I think that's really important. But I also think that we should learn to do merged family trees. We have an understanding of our chronology and genealogy in terms of our grandparents, not great-grandparents, but lots of different people have influenced us. And they don't have to be related to us. They don't have to be related to us. It might be a teacher who really got you and understood you, who changed your life. And that's okay. They then become part of your emotional family tree. It's really important. And I, I think if you are adoptive parents who are giving of your love, of your soul to this child they're taking in 
so much from you that isn't just about blood and bones and organic material. It's about who you are and therefore they become a part of your family tree and you become a part of theirs. So it's about how you bring your stories together and work on a story in, in a more united way. And that, that's become a really important part of my work. Rather than this is your story of damage and trauma and this is my more sorted story or whatever. And they're very separate because then the child grows up with a sense of two very different paths rather than a sense of he or she can can forge their own way in life with the resources that they've taken in. When you adopt a child, do you have support until they're 18? I mean, that's a good question. And I'd like to say it's the same everywhere, but it isn't. So you're entitled to adoption support. If you're going through difficulties, then you can contact your adoption support service locally and ask for help. And usually there's an assessment. There's also something politically called the Adoption Support Fund, which is supposed to provide access, therapeutic access, for children and young people and and their parents to a degree, up until I think it's 21. But if you have a special educational statement, a statement for special educational needs, then I think it's up until 25. So that support is available to have therapeutic work or intervention. Unfortunately, it really does vary from region to region. And there's something called the regional adoption agencies, which now manage that adoption support. It's know your area and what's available and persist. If you feel you need support and things are beginning to go wrong, then persist. I mean, in terms of top tips, I feel somebody needs to say to professionals too, build your support networks, get yourself good supervision. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Maintain boundaries and be honest, but it's really okay to say to families, I don't know. I'm talking about the process. But, but your feelings as a professional are also really useful. And commissioners and health and social care directors, for goodness sake, work together. Pull your resources and, and be more friendly. <laughs> Take the time to be understanding and kind to families who have put so much into caring for these children usually. Sure, know your limits, boundaries and resources. But, you know, ruthless and rivalrous really isn't good for the families that we serve. We're all short of resources. So I would just want to encourage people to work together right from the start, build communities that make it easier for people to be helped and for them to get themselves help before they hit crisis point. We're now going to hear James's story. That's not his real name. James was adopted at three months old. I was given away at birth. My biological mother was 17 when she got pregnant. Not long after, she herself found that she was adopted. She was estranged from my father, who was 23 at the time. Both maternal and paternal grandparents expressed and fought over a wish to raise me, but my mother was headstrong in her wish that I be adopted far away so she could start a new life. I spent three months in foster care. My foster parents wanted to adopt me, but were deemed unsuitable. My adoptive mother had a child two years before me who was born very ill. My adoptive mother woke up to a dead baby 
and was unable to conceive again. My adoptive father worked away. He left permanently when I was three years old. My adoptive mother was distant and cruel. My father had all the right words to say, but we would only see him a couple of times a year. We were very poor. There seemed a constant threat of losing the house. I was smart, charming and gregarious, and always up to something. I never finished school, having been expelled twice for endless disruption. I was always out of the house, moving from one group of friends to another. I always felt peripheral. I moved into a bedsit on the seafront at 15. You could get one if you turned up at the job centre, said you were homeless, and your parents confirmed the situation. I would hang around the town with the other lost boys. I was a prodigious shoplifter. I'd sell the goods in the amusement arcades and scam tourists so I could buy LSD and marijuana. I fell in love with drugs when I was 15, after my first spliff. It was an instant release from the fear, from the constant striving to be liked, but to conceal the fact under front and bravado. I found an identity in angry American hip-hop and the renegade culture of the 90s jungle scene. But even there I felt like an outsider. Both cultures bubbled out of the UK and American black communities. I identified with the expression of the outcast these cultures embodied, but as a little white boy from rural England, I didn't look the part. I was going downhill. I discovered alcohol and oblivion, and a group of friends who would applaud my constant acts of self-destruction. I would do anything to get a response. They all used to fight a lot, and while I craved the association, I'd mostly just get beaten up. I was stuck in a dead-end town with no GCSEs and a probable lifetime of factory work, drinking, fighting, prison and an alcoholic death ahead of me. Then I got pancreatitis, where I came close to death and was told that I could never drink again. That year, I did an access to higher education course and escaped my small town to do a BA and MA and achieve my dream of going to London. I'm still here. I have a wonderful partner of many years and a young son. I have a successful career. I've bought a house. I mentor undergraduates. I have many years of sobriety behind me now. I have it all on paper. Outwardly, I'm hyper-competent. I still have the charm. I can talk my way through life, but I still feel like I'm running across a collapsing bridge, like I'm all style and no substance, about to be found out. I just need to make sure I'm liked. I can't bear criticism. I'm paranoid. I feel, and have always felt, untethered, rootless, without foundation, illegitimate. I am a question unanswered. I'm infatuated with my story. I'm sick of myself and all the noise in my head. I ruminate and project. I wake in the night with the feeling that something vital is not being done. Without drugs and drink, I'm left with extreme exercise, incessant tidying, process addictions. I am a frenzy of avoidance. I use thinking to avoid feeling. I love philosophy and self-improvement. I've done 12 steps, CBT, psychodynamic counselling, integrative counselling, adoption counselling. I feel ashamed. Why can't I just sort this shit out? Is my inner critic me or my adoptive mother? I try to be compassionate to myself but then feel crippled by self-pity. But I also really like who I am. I have tenacity, resilience and self-belief. I know I've done well despite the obstacles. I've lots of love around me. And I feel warm towards my adoptive parents. The word I have is truce. That's not the word I want, but I know it's right. I just don't want to put it in the sentence to which it belongs.
because I am all about the spin. I do it for a living. If I can just get the story straight, then the feelings will follow. Good old mum and dad. They meant well. Gave it their best. We get on well now. I feel guilty that I moved to London. My mum occasionally rings me to ask why I haven't rung her. It must have been so hard for them. Apparently, I cried long and loud for years when I was small. I wet the bed until I was ten. And the getting expelled and arrested. And the family shame. I'm sure she didn't mean it that time she said she wished she hadn't adopted me. That it was my fault she couldn't keep a boyfriend or get a job. And poor biological mum. Young and frightened, I guess. It wasn't personal. It must have been hard for her giving me away. I hope she got the new start she demands in my adoption file. And poor foster parents. Poor grandparents. Poor adoption services. They must have been underfunded. Poor biological dad. 23 and uninterested. But I guess he was immature and scared. Gosh, I caused so much pain. It seems to follow that it's my fault. It's not though, is it? All the therapists say it wasn't. That I'm blameless. But then that means that everyone let me down over and over again. Did they? I think I just wanted someone to be nice to me. To make me feel safe and wanted. Ouch, there it is. I feel the tears. I feel the grief. But that means I really do have trauma. No, I'm just seeking trauma. Pathetic. I'm okay if I think I'm okay. Why can't I stop picking my face? Maybe I'll go on a bike ride. 50 miles. I'm so tired. I'm not okay. But I definitely am okay. Gosh, I wish I was at work. No, this isn't any good. Can't I just like who I am? What difference would finding my biological mum and dad make? What if they're dead? Deviant? Or disappointing? But I just want to see their faces. Smell them. Hold them. Why do I have this urge to tell them it's all okay? Fuck it. I'm glad I get to define myself. Yeah, fuck the lot of them. I'm good. Decision made. I'd only solve the mystery, yet create a load more problems. But maybe that's where I need to go. However messy, at least I'll know. And then maybe I can be comfortable that I didn't need to bother. Let's just have a little Google. I have all these names and places. Okay. Oh, look. There's the house my real mum grew up in on Google Maps. Better not think about that too much. Oh, I think that's my paternal granddad's obituary. And it says my grandma died some time before. Hmm. He was called Henry and she Rosa. She seems really caring in the adoption file. So, they're dead then. I bet they'd have been nice to me. Am I allowed to feel weird about that? Sort it out, you didn't even know them. Never mind. Wow, look, alongside my real dad's name, it seems I have aunties, uncles and cousins. It's a small part of the world where they are, and the dates and names work perfectly. Let's have a look on Facebook. They don't not look like me. Why is my dad's the only private account? I'll stop now. Oh, look, someone of my dad's name and age got convicted of a sex offence. Well, probably not him. Probably. Weird. I feel bad. No, no, this is fine. It's such a cool story. Fascinating. Yes, that's the word. I can't find anything about my mum. Definitely going to stop in a minute. Ooh, there's a lady with my birth surname. And she's from the same area. The age is right, and the surname's pretty unusual. She could be my auntie. She seems nice. Let's Instagram her. I can't believe I did that. She replied. Oh, false alarm. I think I'm going to cry. There's something about women. 
I want them all to be my mum. Right, I'm never doing that again. I'm fine. I'm such an idiot. I think I'm learning to discern. There is no truth and the sands keep shifting. It's okay to feel everything, to feel conflicted about my experience. It wasn't good or bad. It just was. I don't need to be worthy of my suffering. Hold on. Am I trying to tie this all up nicely? I don't think I am. Am I? Alison, we've listened to James's story. I wonder how typical are his feelings? So, yes, they are very typical. The, the feeling that you're alone, that nobody wants you, or um, certainly the experience of, of feeling that your birth mother didn't want to take hold of you and yet you, you have sympathy for her, that your adoptive mother had her issues and yet you have sympathy for her, but also the frustration around feeling lost, not got hold of, not not thought about. What came across in, in his story was just a real desire to run as well. And on the one hand, he's got a real sense of this is why this happened, and I understand it, and I have some empathy and sympathy for those who brought me up. But on the other hand, there's these big feelings of, I feel hurt, I feel lost, I feel angry. It was incredibly sad, this experience of, of running from your feelings just feeling that there's nowhere really to call home, that nobody properly gets hold of me. And I know the adopter describes feeling warm towards his adoptive parents and is called some kind of a truce, but there's definitely something about, well, where do I belong? Where do I fit? And who's going to get hold of me? That's something that feels really painful in the story. I notice that the adopter said, my poor biological mum, my, my poor adoptive mum, everybody's poor. But yet actually he's the one with the big feelings. Mm. And I think there are a lot of adopted young people, young adults or older adults, who have a narrative about their story that makes sense, that it all fits together nicely on paper and it's meaningful. But actually... Their feelings are very different. Their feelings are powerful. They feel lost and hurt and alone. You mentioned earlier about trauma, and that's something that comes up a lot. And I feel like it's a bit of a secret word where adoption is concerned. But, you know, you were very forthright about that. You said ad adoption is a trauma. Why is it a trauma? The experience for a baby should be that the person that you've grown with in the womb, the voice that you've heard the familiar sounds remain in place. You were prepared for a particular set of parents. And I think to be removed from those parents and the experience as well as the knowledge that you were given away is really traumatic. It's, it's a very first trauma. You've been severed from the person you should have been with. I think it's really hard to understand that. I mean, I use the analogy for adults who don't understand when someone has been adopted, it may not be a baby, it might be a younger child or even a slightly older child. If you were on a long journey in a car and you were driving through various unknown towns that you hadn't been to before 
And then somebody said, as you drove past a house with lights on, stop the car, this is now your home. As an adult, if you never went back to the home that you journeyed from, someone opened the front door, he didn't know, and that became your home. Well, that, that's the experience for so many of these children. Not just once, but so, some of these adopted children and people had two, three, four, five or more foster carers. Or they sometimes went to grandparents or they sometimes went to an aunt or an uncle. And they had so many different homes to try and get used to. If you've had your own baby or if you've witnessed babies soon after they've been born, so often they open their eyes wide and they look around for their birth parent. And the moment they clock eyes on the birth parent, he says, here I am, I've got you, <laughs> or whatever. There's some kind of a, hopefully, a healthy enough place to lock eyes with their baby and say, you're mine. So often a baby will relax, close their eyes and fall asleep. Some of these little ones are still looking years later for that parent to lock eyes with who will get hold of them and say, you're mine. So how can we make adoptees feel safe? Certainly, I would say to this adopter, trust yourself in your feelings and, and find ways and times that you can be still and think, even if it's hard. It's really important not to keep running. It uses up an awful lot of energy and can leave you little resources left for relationships or your studies or your work. This adoptee talks about being found by his partner. He's got a really meaningful, fulfilling relationship with somebody and that's really positive. I would say people who are able to build good relationships whilst they're still trying to make sense of their beginnings, that's really meaningful because so many people who've had this very difficult start in life, who've been on the run, really continue to struggle with relationships. So that the sense that he's found someone, he feels, he understands and they understand him and there's a connection. It's really meaningful. So it's about finding people you can belong with and fit with. You don't have to accept the crumbs from the table. You don't have to be grateful. <laughs> but I guess that's quite a process to learn that, isn't it? It is. I, I feel like I'm making sweeping statements, but I also think it's really important for people to hear that you're valuable, that there are people who can and will validate you if you trust yourself and make time to build those kinds of relationships and begin to notice the difference. The people who drain you and take from you and the people who add to you and help you feel more alive. We won't find all the answers. None of us will. It's not just about adoptees. We, we don't find all of the answers but I, I think having the courage to keep journeying and to keep being curious and to find people who will journey with us is important. What do you say when children ask about being given away? What's a helpful answer? That's where it's knowing the story that is pertinent to your child. I think to say that your birth parent had big hurts, that's really important. I also think that too many 
professionals and parents say they couldn't look after you. But actually, it's really important to say they couldn't look after themselves. Mm. They couldn't keep themselves safe. So how are they going to keep you safe? Mm. The trouble is that children always blame themselves. So I think what children hear and what you want them to hear might be different. So you might say, well, they couldn't look after you. But the way that a child might internalise that is I was too much for yeah, them definitely. and I'm too much for everybody. So I think it is much better to say they really couldn't look after themselves. They were still children themselves that hadn't been looked after and they just couldn't take care of themselves. Is it ever okay to lie? Like if they say, did they love me? And you, you don't know or you don't think so. What would you say to that? I mean, should you ever lie? Well, I don't think it's lying if you say, I really don't know. I think understanding love is confusing. And if you didn't meet the birth parents, you might say, well, well, I do know they fought for you. That's really important for a child to hear. If it's true. If it's true. (laughs) If that's in the story. Or you could say, I do know that they didn't put up a fight. And that, that might mean that they wanted you to have a good home and they didn't feel they can provide it. But I, I really don't know what that was about. So I, I think it's, I think it's really okay to say. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. This is what I do know. I really don't know what they felt for you. In fact, I don't even know if they were able to feel at all when they had you because they were running and, and they were using drugs and they were doing their best not to have feelings. But I'm pretty sure if, if this is a very young child, if they did have feelings, how could they not have felt something for you because you're amazing? Now, that's not lying. Mm. <laughs> that's your sense of the child and, and your love for them. And that's the message you want them to receive. This is a really hard question for you to answer. But should they ever look for their birth parents? I think it's an individual journey. What should they think about before they do? Well, I mean, that that's a good question. I think there's all kinds of things you need to think about. One is I would say your p- birth parent is not going to complete you, a bit like a romantic attachment. I know some people in my life who can never be alone. They always have to have someone. They always have to be arranging to meet someone. Mm. And I think that's curious. It's as if I'm, I'm not fully myself on my own. There's similar advice to people who struggle with relationships, which is if, if you have a good relationship with yourself and you can parent yourself and you know how to have compassion for yourself and look after yourself, you're in a much better place to begin to seek out that birth parent if that's what you want to do then if you're hoping they're going to fill some aching, yearning, longing within you that you somehow haven't made sense of, because the chances are you're going to end up with more aching and longing, even if you do find your birth parent, because of their own difficulties and traumas that that cause them to, to lose you in the first place. So, yeah, le- learning to parent yourself and come to terms with those little hurt parts of yourself and to know what to do with them before you begin that journey, I would say. 
And also, sometimes people who've written to me have become parents themselves. The adoptees have become parents, and they've sort of they may have not thought about it, but suddenly they're looking at their own child and asking questions such as, "How could you give me away?" Or, um, I mean, it's true of any stage of life. Sometimes there's bits that particularly kind of hit the hot spots. You so sometimes people haven't thought about it, and you know, maybe if you are adopted and you're thinking of having children, would you say it's reasonable to think? it might bring up challenging feelings for you once you become a parent. It's absolutely reasonable, Annalisa. I think so many parents don't realise how their own experience of being parented is going to enter the arena once you become a parent and, and feelings you didn't know you had will, will start to get stirred mm. up. I'm just looking at a quote from a young person that they gave me for my book though about their experience and this young person said to me it's hard to show emotion about your birth parents to your adoptive parents when you do care about them but not in the same way you kind of know you don't really belong with your adoptive parents you spend your life not really knowing who you are and where you belong but there's always this yearning and people don't get what that's like. So I think there's something about coming to terms with that narrative of re I feel like I don't really belong, I don't really fit. And, and that's curious and difficult for me sometimes. But what's that about? And, and how can I do some work on that before I expect answers by seeking out my birth parent? But in terms of being a parent, if you were a an adopted child and you become a parent, it, there are all other kinds of curiosities as well in that your, your birth child may look completely different to you and your partner. And then you start to think, well, where's, where's that come from? <laughs> all those freckles or blimey, they're feisty. And then you start to maybe think, oh, well, I think I might do a bit of digging now. Not for me, but I want to to have a sense of what my birth parent might have looked like or what what kind of things could I learn about their personality that helps me maybe understand my child. So I, I think there's different motivations. Either way, it's going to stir things up for you. So make sure you've got some support or a good relationship, someone who's a good listener. Yes, I, I mean, sometimes when women who have been adopted are pregnant, they suddenly become very interested in things like family health and were there any sort of issues or mm. medical issues. I mean, I think you do, even if you're not adopted. I know I did when I was pregnant. I was suddenly like, you know, what happened here and what happened there? How important is it if you adopt a child that's from a different culture, how important is it to honour that culture? That's an interesting question around difference. Again, I think it's really important not to hide away from differences. Having conversations about difference can only, only be helpful, even if it's difficult. Truth and understanding gives us choices about changing patterns, but it also opens up more conversations. So I think conversations about difference, race, gender, same-sex parenting, even class, rather than it making us feel more different and separate, it can create opportunities to connect. But I, I also think that it's not necessarily accurate to say that someone with the same colour skin as a 
par as their adoptive parent is going to feel that they fit and belong. Mm. So I think it's really important that we as professionals and as parents don't make assumptions. It's a very complex picture. Even birth children don't always feel that they fit with their parents or their family. They may feel very, very different. That's why I'm interested in adoption. Every child deserves the right to have a place they can call home and feel that they belong. So in terms of cultural issues, I think it's helping the young person understand their history and their identity, their sense of themselves and their culture, but also how you fit with me. I might be different to you. I might have a different colour skin or I might have come from a different part of India where we cook with different spices and everyone thinks that we understand each other. But I, I want to learn about the part of India you come from. And we're going to learn together about the kind of spices they use in your part of India. Because we're different and it's an opportunity for us to connect. Well, I think that's a lovely way to end. Thank you so much to Alison for all her wisdom and expertise. Alison has a long list of books she recommends. I'll put the details in the episode description. We also mentioned the Adoption Support Fund and the regional adoption agencies in this episode. And you can find details of those local to you through your GP, social services, or of course, Google. And thank you so much to James for sharing his story with us. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa or you can email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time. 
quince.com slash style. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.